is found, I put in the, uh, the paper here, the, uh, what serves as a substitute for our bulletin, this passage from John chapter 15 and 16. But really what I want to talk about, and this is just a selection from the whole area of what Jesus taught his disciples, his, his last words almost, what his last conversation with his disciples, which is found in John chapter 13 to 17. We're not going to do all of that, obviously, this morning. But I want to just uh, pick out some of these verses, and I'll pray, and then we'll see what the Lord may have to say. In the middle of his discourse, of his conversation with the disciples, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And of course there's more, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, you showed us in the lives of these disciples of Jesus a picture of what our lives will be like in our lives, not perhaps individually, each of us, but among those who name the name of Christ this day, there are many across this world that suffer because they know you and they confess you and they speak the truth that you give them and the world hates them. And as you say in the book of Hebrews, the world is not worthy of such. And Lord, though we have an easier time in many ways, we share the, the name of Jesus that is despised by many. And though we have a measure of greater freedom and greater uh, comfort here in this country, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, that this is only by your grace. So Lord, teach us and show us, Lord, what you wanted your disciples to hear as your last conversation, your last speech before you went to the cross. We pray that you'd open our ears, Lord, help us to listen. Guard my tongue, guard my lips, Lord, guard my mind that I may not speak anything that is incorrect or evil or misleading, Lord. I pray that your spirit would oversee this whole process 
this morning. And I offer you my lips and my heart. In Christ's name, amen. So to set the scene, we have the disciples gathered in the upper room. By the time we come in here in chapter 15, Judas has already departed. And it was Jesus' hour, if we look in the first uh, verses of chapter 13, it was his hour, it was his time, his time to depart, to literally change the place of his residence, of his, of his uh, living spot uh, quarters, to leave the disciples. Now, he had told them that before, that he was going to leave them. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 13, because he loved them, he loved them to the end. The Father had given all things into his hands. He had come from God. He was going back to God. He was about to accomplish his greatest work. To finish the task that had been assigned to him by the Father. To do his will perfectly and obey him every moment of his life. Every breath, every word was done in obedience and submission to the will of the Father. And these disciples, we say the disciples followed Jesus. Well, they did uh, for three years, more or less. That's what the commentators believe the time period is. They had witnessed and listened to his preaching, his, seen his mighty works. Three of them had even seen a revelation of his glory on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. They walked with him up and down the countryside. But it wasn't just that they hung around with him. He, they had already been in training. And it may be easy to forget that they had been prepared. They went out two by two, in one case, to the villages and towns and cities of Israel. And they proclaimed the message, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The Messiah is here. That's what they were saying. And did you ever wonder how Jesus got crowds of 3,000, 5,000 people? How did that happen? Well, the disciples did the legwork. They were out in the cities, the towns and villages, in the areas. And they were preaching the gospel. They were saying, Jesus is here. He's the Messiah. The kingdom of God is here. And they heard about the mighty works. They probably told people that hadn't heard about him, about these mighty works. So they were, they were working. They were ha working hard. They weren't just sitting down on the stones around and Jesus taught. They did that in the, the field, in the, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But they were hard at work all these three years. They'd seen everything. They'd heard it all. And now Jesus was about to leave. And in his love, Jesus had an intimate conversation with them. And even as in chapter 13, verse 33, he calls them his little children, tenderly, as a, as a father almost, to those that he had led and instructed, and they had followed him all those years. So, if you're keeping score at home, I have three points. <laughs> the disciples at this time need help. So that's the first point. His disciples need help. Secondly, they're given hope. And then last, they're promised a helper. So that's, that's the sum of what I want to cover in this morning out of all these chapters. First, Jesus breaks the news to them gently, this perplexing news. 
He says, yet a little while I am with you. I'm not going to be here very much longer. I'm going where you cannot follow me now. In chapter 13, verse 36. I'm going to him who sent me. Chapter 16, verse 5. And I'm going away. Chapter 14, verse 28. You will see me no longer. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now, did the disciples understand that? Most of the commentators believe, and I certainly agree with them, they, they did not understand. And, and from various things that they said, it was clear they didn't understand what he was saying. It's not what they were expecting to hear. What were they expecting to hear? They'd been sent out. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the battles with the Pharisees and the powers that be. And, of course, what were they thinking? The kingdom is coming. The king is here. Let's have a kingdom. Let's have a revolution, almost. Let's change. You know, let's put everything right now. Let's do it. You have the power to do it. And they believed he could do that. But they, didn't, they weren't aware of what his real mission was, his real uh, service that he was doing, not just for Israel, but for all the people, all of us who believe in him from that day down through the ages, and even for the Old Testament uh, saints who believed in the coming Messiah and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. They did not understand that when Peter was offered, Jesus offered to wash his feet. Jesus told him, he said, no, not my feet, but also my head and my hands. Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. In chapter 13, verse 2, do you understand what I have done to you? A rhetorical question. Seeming that Jesus worries that they do not understand the meaning of his washing their feet. And when Judas went out in chapter 13, the Bible, this text tells us no one at the table knew why, why he said this to him. He had the little conversation with Judas, you know, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no, they didn't know what was going on. Peter thought that he would be brave enough to lay down his life for Jesus in chapter 13, verse 36. And that's when Jesus tells him, well, you're not going to do that. You're going to deny that you know me three times. Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? They didn't know. Philip, and this, that's in chapter 14, verse 5. Chapter 14, verse 9. Philip, I have, been, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Do you not believe? And also in chapter 14, verse 22, there's another Judas, Judas, not Iscariot, that, that asks the question, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And in, inferring that Jesus is going to manifest himself as a great king, he's going to defeat the, uh, the Romans and take, take Israel back to their glory days. Jesus had been using illustrations figures of speech, again, that make it difficult for them to understand exactly what he was doing. Jesus broke the news to them that he was leaving. That's the bad news. They did not understand it beyond, perhaps, that just he was leaving. 
but, they sh but he loved them. You love, he's telling them to love each other. Love as I have loved you. I will love him and manifest myself to him. My father will love him and make, we will make our home with him. So the disciples see Jesus is going away, but there's worse news that he brings in. He's warning them when he goes away of what would happen. And so there would be trouble. They would be hated as Jesus was hated. The world hates you. The world thinks that Christians are deluded. Of course, we know that the world is blind, and so we can have this, con not a conversation, but this accusation back and forth. You're deluded, you're blind, and nobody makes any progress without the power of God at work. The world will persecute you, cause you to flee, they will pursue you. Jesus tells them, they, the religious people, will put you out of the synagogues. They will excommunicate you. They will shun you. And they will kill you. 16.2. Such as the uh, man who became the Apostle Paul, Saul, that was his reason for living for a time, was to destroy the church of God. You will be scattered. Chapter 16, verse 32. In Zechariah 13, it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Sorrow or sadness has filled your heart. You will weep and lament. 16, verse 20. You will have sorrow now. You will be sorrowful. And then right at the end of the passage today, which I'll read, find here. In the world, you will have tribulation. And that word tribulation has to do with pressure. You're going to be pressured. In Romans 12, it says the world wants to press you into its image, to, to conform us, to its, its evils, its unacceptable, unacceptable attitudes to God, its imperfections. And uh, I like the Phillips translation, translation of that verse. It's, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. This is what your life is going to be like, Jesus says. So the question is, did they understand it? Did it frighten them? We're not sure. But after he got done teaching them, they went out into the garden from that room. Of course, chapter 17, they heard Jesus' final prayer, the high priestly prayer, as it's known. They went into the garden. Jesus prayed. He had prayed for them. He prays for them again in the garden. He prays for himself. And again, the disciples did not grasp the meaning of what was to happen next. As events unfolded, they were dropped right into the, the battle zone. As Jesus prayed, what happened? They fell asleep, at least the three of them that were appointed, he pointed especially to watch. They fell asleep. At the arrest, they ran away. Although 
If you look carefully, it says Jesus told the uh, authorities to let them go. Which I think was a supernatural intervention. Normally you'd think, well, here comes the, the posse to round up the crew. But in the end, they only take Jesus. Because he says to let them go. And that was despite Peter's clumsy attempt to fight. So even though he did that, they let him go. Jesus corrected the situation. After that, Peter and John followed at a distance. At least Peter and John, the ones we know about. And thereby, Peter had the opportunity to fail and to prove Jesus right by denying that he knew the Lord. And then Peter, realizing his denials, he ran away and spent the rest of the time in hiding. And he said he wept bitterly. We know that John went to the crucifixion site the next day and he was in the company of Jesus' mother and what other, other family were present at, at the cross. And so John was not perceived to be a threat or a danger. He was, he was there witnessing the events and by being there he received the assignment from the Lord to take care of his mother. We go even farther along even on the morning of the resurrection, the disciples were hiding out. Who was it that went to the tomb to do the work of the, of the uh, embalming, so to speak? The women, ladies. Again, who does the dirty work? Well, especially in those days, it was the women. But in their faithfulness to do that, they tended to that. They were the first to know of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, the angels reminded them. It says the angels reminded them and then they remembered. So they, they, they knew that what the angels said was true. And so they, they knew that Jesus was alive. Mary saw him. But, and then the women went back to the disciples and what did they do? These words, Luke 24, 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Although they ran to the tomb, John and, and Peter. said so John reached the tomb first, went in, and he saw and believed. And then John 20, verse 8 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, and it says, then the disciples went back to their own homes. The disciples didn't understand. There were, in addition to this, post-resurrection appearances. Three times, according to John's Gospel. The evening of the resurrection, Jesus came into the room. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them. And then eight days later, again, the disciples were inside. Jesus came and stood among them. And this time, Thomas was there. And that's when Jesus, off, you know, the first time Jesus, he, Thomas had not been there, but after that, and so Thomas said, unless I put my hands into the nails of his, nail prints in his hands on his side, I will not believe. So this time, in his grace, Jesus comes back, Thomas is there, and, and he says, okay, here's your chance. And even after that, did they understand what these things meant? 
when they went to Galilee, Peter and seven of the other uh, disciples were up there and they said, I'm going fishing. And so they went back to work and they saw Jesus was cooking breakfast on the shore. They came back and he had the conversation with Peter about feeding my lambs, feeding my sheep. Simon, do you love me? So what's it going to take to help these, these fellows understand? Go back to the upper room. And John 16, 33. Because Jesus gives them a hope. And a hope that they must, a hope is something you must believe in by faith. Uh, in the world you will have trouble, tribulation, but, that's, 16, glasses aren't helping me, 1633. I like that word, but. This is going to happen. All these bad things are happening. You're not going to get it. But still, take heart. For I have overcome the world. Now to the disciples, outside of faith, they knew in a way Jesus had risen from the dead. But I'm not sure they really understood what all that meant. Not yet. Because they needed a helper. And Jesus had told them during his conversation that a helper will come. 1526. Among other times. And he said it, he said it more than once over and over again. This one. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So the disciples didn't see their mission yet, about bearing witness. An intercessor, a counselor, an advocate. By themselves, they weren't going to be able to do it. And by ourselves these days, even now, by ourselves, we can't accomplish God's purposes. We need a helper, an intercessor, a consoler, sorry, a consoler, an advocate, sent by Jesus from his Father, proceeding from the Father, bearing witness about Jesus, guiding us into all truth, speaking what he hears from Jesus and the Father, declaring the things that are to come, glorifying Jesus, taking from what is his and declaring it to you. This is our hope. This is the hope of the disciples. The hope of seeing him again. Jesus had said, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to drink here. <laughs> Put it in time. Jesus had said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And then again, a little while and you will see me. So a hope of seeing Jesus again, and the disciples did do that. After the resurrection, as I already mentioned, and even appeared finally to the Apostle Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, says that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep? Or is it a spiritual vision that we receive through the mediation of the Holy Spirit? A spiritual way of seeing him, which that's what Calvin believed. Or is it ultimately when we die ourselves and go to be present with him? Or at the end of the age when he returns again? It's all, all different aspects of seeing him. The disciples saw him. We, we see him in a way now. We will see him when he returns and when he comes for us there. Another hope, a hope for joy, not only seeing the Lord, but joy. In uh, chapter 16, verse 22, you will be sorrowful, but, and there's that word but again, your sorrow will turn to joy. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Joy. On the one hand, persecution, sadness, sorrow. On the other hand, joy. Hope in the Father's love. Jesus said He loved them. And Jesus in, in this uh, conversation He had with them proved that the Father loved them too. The Father Himself loves you. And then there's hope for peace. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And the Helper will give you peace. Let the peace of Christ rule, Colossians 3.15. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Ephesians 2.17 The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. We have the Spirit since Pentecost. Notice that... Uh, Jesus later told them to wait in Acts chapter 1. Wait until the power comes on you from on high. So in this meantime, where all this floundering around is happening and all these uncertainties and nobody knows what's happening, aside from a few words from, from the resurrected Jesus, here are the apostles, and of course they're waiting. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Not... I don't even know if they knew exactly what that meant, other than they had to stick together, stay together, and uh, wait for that moment. Of course, and when Jesus told them that, he gave them their mission, which was go, make disciples, preach, and baptize. And while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, uh, I'll skip that. Go, make disciples, preach, and baptize. The, uh, and they did that. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, we know the rest of the story. Uh, witness by witness, generation by generation, here we are even today. They spoke the truth to someone, someone else spoke it or wrote it down, passed it on to another, and on and on through these 2,000 years since then. Life to life, heart to heart, uh, through the uh, ages, we see that 
He is, Jesus has overcome the world. Not finally, but we're still here. So every day, now, the Holy Spirit came. Here we are. Now, what's this mean? How, what does it mean to us? You know, we have our helper. Uh, every day, every moment in this life, we experience a disconnect. Because we've said on one hand, Jesus said, we're going to have trouble, we're going to have problems, we're going to have uh, persecution, death, problem, everything along those lines. And on the other hand, there's, we have peace, joy, love, knowing God's love. And that, that's the tension, I think, of our lives these days. And, and every Christian in every generation experiences the same tension. There's a disconnect because Jesus says you must live by faith, not by sight. What we know is true, faith, versus what we see. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was really the first generation of a Christian to live in that way because he saw the Lord Jesus in, in a vision. But he mentioned, said, we, this was happening, persecution in the Roman Empire. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So what do we do with these feelings of hating, being hated, persecution, rejection, pressure, affliction, anguish, burdens, tribulation, trouble? That's true. That's what we see. That's what we feel. That's what our eyes see. Even crushing regrets, failures of our own, guilt, self-pity, even despair, So I think the key, and Jim's preached on lamenting, you know, all these sadnesses that come into our hearts and into our lives, is that, that the psalmist tells us to invest your tears and troubles, to process them. What the world will tell us to do today is just, or what we do, what I do, I just sit on it, I stuff it. It's in my heart, it's just cooking around in there. I like to go in there once in a while and stir it up and and uh, like a pet, like a bad pet. But as we grow in Christ, as we understand more of his way, you know, God says he gives us a heart of flesh. We feel things more deeply. Our hurts are deeper because we have a heart that will, will accept it. You know, if we had a heart of stone, it just bounces off. And a lot of people you meet may be like that. Do you have a tender heart, a heart of flesh? And the psalmist says, now, Tim Keller says we should sow them, our, our, fear, our tears, our troubles, our concerns, sow them, because in Psalm 126, which we sang, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Tears planted produce joy. 
And joy is the experience of God's love, his peace. In the face of Jesus Christ, his smile of approval. It's interesting, the Apostle Peter says, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And when I, when I read that, and I said, well, cast them, it's like a sower went forth to sow. We cast them. God keeps count of our, tear, of our tossing, Psalm 56. He puts our tears in a, in a bottle. Are they not in your book? God sees and knows each one. So when you're suffering, when you're struggling with this, not being able to reconcile the difference between God's love and all those things he says, by faith that we know that, and then what I see with my eyes, what I came to me, don't try to figure out how to fix it. Are you a fixer? Sometimes I get like that. I like to fix problems. I'm an engineer. <laughs> it's my job. It's my career. I've been doing it for 44 years. I've been fixing problems for people in the plant, in the factory where I work. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Don't try to figure out how, but remember who. Just struck me. It's three, three letters, H-O-W-W-H-O. I give you that for nothing. And as Jesus told his disciples when they're waiting for Pentecost, we have to wait. And while we wait, we have to remember. Because we get in trouble when we don't remember, when we don't recall. And the disciples all through this whole period of time from the crucifixion, from the night before the crucifixion, Monday, Thursday, all the way through to Pentecost, they didn't remember. May we remember. May we know when we pray and we get an answer, we get no answer, or we get the answer no. How do we react? In lamenting, sometimes interesting, Psalm 39, the end of it, the psalmist says, Okay, Lord, the end of the Psalm 39 is go away, leave me alone, and I will die. And sometimes, you know, I feel like that. And if you tell that to the Lord, that uh, God won't do that. Uh, there's a quote here from, that I want to share. Once I can find it. It's here. Oh, there it is. That's a, it's just from a book by Derek Kidner. He knows, this is about that Psalm 39, he knows how we speak when we are desperate. How can he, how can he accept that when you tell him to go away? But he, he knows. He may, we may come to desperate moments. We may come to desperate times. But he knows how we speak when we do that. He understands how can he understand? Because when Jesus was in the garden and he prayed, Lord, please take this away from me. It's too much. But nevertheless, but there's another one of those buts, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. God said, no, I'm not going to take it away. In his humanity, as Jesus was praying that, God said, no, I'm not going to take it away. 
And when Jesus was on the cross, hanging there in agony, suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And he got what? No answer. Because he got no answer. Because he got the answer, no. We, even when we're desperate, will never get the answer, no. Even when we say, go away, he will not ever leave us alone. He will not ever forsake us. He was, Jesus was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Romans chapter 8, which should be familiar to you. Nothing means not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. In this struggle, if you're overcome with guilt and self-pity, just look to the cross at any time. Look to the cross. If you need help, come to Pastor Nate or Pastor Jim or myself. That's all we're going to tell you to do. Spring it to Jesus. Look to the cross. If you don't know what he is doing, look to the cross. Notice that you know, most of the people that looked on Jesus' death that Good Friday day, they just walked away. Said, nothing to see here. It's not important. Got a clue, I think, Cleopas was one of the people on the road to Emmaus. They were going home after all of this happened, and Jesus met them. And he, so they had to have an explanation as to what that meant. But uh, they were going away. They didn't know what it meant. But our mission is to tell people what it meant. So to close, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, the joy is inevitable. You know, all true prayer, Eugene, Eugene Peterson in a book said, all true prayer pursued far enough will become praise in the end. Even if it takes weeks or months or years or decades or even a lifetime. For the Christian, joy is inevitable. The Father's love is inescapable. Romans 8, 35 to 39. You can't escape it. The peace of God is, passes all understanding, which I put down as incomprehensible. And the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is, not, is inextinguishable. Is that a word? I don't know. Maybe not. And it's our, it's our privilege, our joy, to make disciples, to proclaim this message though they're going to hate us, though they're going to reject us, though whatever the cost, to try to reconcile that together. As it's easy for us. It's not really happening very much now. But other places in the world, it is hard. And they are, there are Christians dying and being put in prison and suffering for their faith. Remember to pray for them. But here, let's make disciples of our glorious, gracious Savior and friend that they may know Him and hope in Him. 
Take a drink and then we'll close in prayer. Lord, there is nowhere else we can go. No one else has the words of eternal life. Lord, all of the things that distract us and, and even though, Lord, they're dear to us, there are nothing compared to you. That you, in your great love, you loved us, you loved us to the end. And you are our only hope in life and death. So, Lord, do these things you said you would do. Lord, help us. You give us, Lord, more of, of the Helper, the Holy Spirit who comes to us and speaks to us and strengthens us and reminds us, Lord, of you and who you are and what you have done. When we are distracted, when we believe our own eyes more than we believe you. So, Lord, do your work from Hope Church and across the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.